We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Stuntman on June 27, 1980. It was written by Lawrence B. Marcus and Richard Rush, based on The Stuntman by Paul Broder, or Broder, not sure, directed by Richard Rush and released by 20th Century Fox. In the 70s, the rights to the novel were held by Columbia, who had considered Arthur Penn and Francois Truffaut to direct at different times. There was a novel? Like, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining this. I mean, I had a hard time it following it It definitely works as better a as a movie, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it works better than the novel, but I still had a hard time understanding what was happening. Yeah. Francois Truffaut would have been a very unusual version of this movie as yeah, well. Yeah, it would have been. It still would have been fun, but I think Richard Rush did it right. Eventually, they settled on Richard Rush, based on the strength of his recent release, Getting Straight, and William Castle was on board to EP. Uh, William Castle was the inspiration for John Goodman's character in Joe Dante's Matinee. He was a longtime B-horror director out of Columbia Pictures, and he was famous for his theatrical gimmicks. For example, House on Haunted Hill was presented in Emergo, which was a fancy way of saying that a skeleton with red eyes would be strung up on a wire and swung over the audience during the film's <laughs> climax. That's awesome. His it's like film the, it's like those crappy, you know, rides at theme parks when you get like squirt with water. Exactly. I'm that's not all... talking about Shrek 40 or anything. I promise. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, but that's all based on his work. Uh, his film, The Tingler, was presented in Percepto, which meant that the chair would vibrate suddenly at the end of the film when one of the monsters appears to have escaped the film into the theater. Uh, D-box. Yeah, basically. But it would only shake like one chair at a time so you could follow the screams and figure out where it was in the theater. I, I hate D-box because it sounds like a bathroom code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to use the D-box. Sorry, but I guys. actually like D-box itself. The experience. Yeah. What was I the only ever did it for Fast Five. That, I, I was going to say, I think we only ever went to one movie, but and it, it was, was great. awesome. Yeah. That it was the exact movie that D-Box was designed for. Truly. His 1961 film, Homicidal, had a fright break, which featured a visible countdown during the movie. The audience was given 45 seconds during the climax to leave before the time ran out and get a full refund if they were too frightened to finish the film. What? So patrons collected their refunds from a yellow cardboard booth labeled Coward's Corner. So if they were too scared to watch the the climax or they just really wanted their money back, they had to go to this booth to get their money back. And then other people would see them lined up and be like, oh, this movie's so scary. I got to see it now. I want to know how successful that was. I think pretty successful. I mean, uh, his gimmicks in general are well-remembered. Famous admirers of uh, William Castle include Robert Zemeckis and John Waters, who, inspired by Castle, I'm sure, presented his film Polyester in Smell-O-Vision, where they gave you a little card of scratch-and-sniff squares that you, as you reached pivotal points in the film, you would scratch them and smell what the characters were smelling. I think that when they finally did like a dvd or blu-ray home release they include the cards with yeah. those as well that's definitely how i watched it the first time was with the card on the on the home release i wish you could smell what i'm smelling <laughs> i don't know what that's a reference to it's oh. from the 
the Five damn, Guys review. Damn, damn. <laughs> oh, yes. When Columbia turned down director Rush's treatment for the film, he bought the rights himself and shopped it around to studios on his own. William Castle suffered a fatal heart attack at 77, and Rush then connected with Melvin Simon, a real estate mogul turned film financier, to produce the film. It won several prestigious festival awards before they had locked down a distributor, and it landed at 20th Century Fox. Other Melvin Simon productions include When a Stranger Calls, Zorro the Gay Blade, and the Porky's Trilogy. So it's neat that this guy was like, made a bunch of money in real estate and was like, I want to make movies. And then he made some decent movies. Yeah. Also some less than decent movies, but that's just, I like, that's the only way that a movie like The Stuntman gets made Mm -hmm. is when there's a crazy person with a lot of money that's like, this is a weird idea. We're not sure how to sell it, but I don't care. Here's your money. Make the movie. Yeah. I was wondering about that because I just don't know who would have made this movie. It's like the island in my head of, of like, this would have been so hard to sell to the money people. Yes. And then it still got and made it, it and it looks be, great. It had to be expensive. It had to be so expensive. Even with one location, it looked super expensive. I mean, because all of the battle scenes? Because that, because that is a historical landmark that mm-hmm. they're shooting squibs they're at destroying. and falling off of. And they're building like facades on the, t- on yeah. the roof of. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't know how they got away with that, how they got permission. Yeah. I almost, it, the, the, I almost feel like, well, we'll get into it, but the, I feel like the, the police chief character was added because of probably the real situation of making yeah, this movie. That's funny. Um, filming took place largely around the historic Hotel de Coronado right. in Coronado, California. Peter O'Toole based his performance on his experience with David Lean on the set of Lawrence of Arabia mixed with John Huston. Once he had decided on O'Toole and Railsback for the lead characters, director Rush turned down opportunities to direct Peter O'Toole with Jeff Bridges or Sean Connery with Stephen Railsback or George C. Scott with Martin Sheen over the course of a year and a half Wait, until who, his who, ideal who, cast was available. Who would have been who in that with Martin Sheen? Would Martin Sheen have been the, yeah, the George stuntman? C. Scott is the old man and Martin Sheen is the stuntman. <laughs> it's sharp. not that long after Apocalypse Now. Yeah, How, how but old would he have been? He still time? would have been old, I feel. He would have been in his 40s. I don't think so. I feel like he would have been as old as the guy who teaches Steve Rails back how to be a stuntman. That's, I thought he was pretty young in uh, Apocalypse Now, and that was like three years before this. Google. Well, how old is Charlie Sheen? Martin Sheen? Martin Sheen was born in 1940. So he would have been 40 or like 30-something on the set. Mm. Yeah. I still think that works. At one point, Ryan O'Neill was being considered for the Railsback character. Richard Rush saw Steve Railsback in Helter Skelter, which was that TV movie about Charles Manson. And he was like, that's the guy who I want to play this character. Because Steve Railsback just is Charles Manson. <laughs> like, he just <laughs> looks exactly like him and acts like him so much. During the production, Warner Brothers wanted to release a film called The Stuntman and went into arbitration with Rush, and they eventually lost. So Warner Brothers had to change the title of their movie to Hooper which is that film that we've discussed before with uh, yeah. Burt Reynolds and Jan Michael Martin Vincent, Vincent yeah. as stuntmen. And uh, Rush suffered two heart attacks during the production and post-production process. The first cut was 150 minutes long. Uh, in the end, it was nominated for three Oscars, Best Actor for O'Toole, Best Director for Rush, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It won none of these, unfortunately. I'm super surprised it was actually nominated for a bunch of stuff. It I... was the only one that was nominated for a director that wasn't nominated for picture that year. Wow, yeah. I 
I don't know. I don't feel that way about this movie. I definitely do. And it didn't get any kind of visual effects nomination, which I think is odd. That is crazy. Like, if anything, if any kind of nomination, I would have thought visual effects. Yeah. We start with a buzzard on a white background that is suddenly replaced with an actual background. And, uh, <laughs> like, the buzzard is, is was rotoed out of the shot and then drops into it. And he is perched on a telephone pole. He swoops down over a sleeping dog who wakes up and moves to lick his balls. Uh, This took several takes. They had to peanut butter up the dog's balls. Oh, God. Usually you're not doing it on the dog's balls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, An animated slate clap starts clicking, spelling out the film's credits. You're just making this up, right? Like, you didn't actually (laughs) find IMDb trivia. No, really. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. Well, it's not inhumane. I guess. I guess. No. If the dog's happy, then it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Dude, he got peanut butter and his balls licked, so. Yeah. What more could you ask for? <laughs> um, <laughs> How much is this a staying in? <laughs> None of it. We haven't started yet. An animated slate clap starts clicking and spelling out the film's credits and title. Uh, this was up, super obnoxious. The yeah. sound repeating over and yes, over again. It could have just been clapping. Yes. We didn't have to hear it every time. Yes. Uh, a police car intending to move past the dog licking its balls honks repeatedly until the dog eventually barks back at it and finally moves. And we're getting all the while we're getting this really kind of zany madcap musical score. It plays throughout the movie and I hate it. Yes. It it doesn't really match what's going on very well, I would say. A pair of telephone company workers comment on how close they were missed by a passing helicopter before noticing a buzzard on the top of the neighboring telephone pole. They try to scare it away by throwing something at it, and the buzzard flies up and almost, uh, or no, it does. It successfully crashes into the windshield of the passing helicopter. What did they throw at it? Because they're up on a telephone pole. It's not like they had rocks or something. Yeah. They, they had Unless to it was an a- empty beverage, I, I, th- I would think it was a tool. Yeah, it's like, it's like, do you need that, that thing that you just threw? Because yeah. you're up on the top of a pole now. Also, yeah. that's kind of dangerous, because you're on top of a pole. Yeah. But the bird flies away and just explodes against the windshield of the passing helicopter. And the pilot's like, that crazy bird tried to kill us. And an unseen passenger in the back seat corrects him while holding an apple with a bite out of it to block the actor's face. And he says, that's your perspective. He tosses the apple out of the helicopter window and it bounces down the roof of a diner before landing with a thud on the roof of a squad car in the parking lot. The cops inside of it move into the diner to apprehend a suspect they heard about on their radio at this point i have no idea what this movie was supposed to be about yeah it's going all over the place like i was like at this point i think at many points during this movie i had no idea what it was about i understood it the whole time they're i I felt like oh they're introducing us to all these characters because these characters are important we haven't gotten to one important character yeah yes we have that one guy that had the apple was important Uh, what's he look like i don't know he eats apples i know that that plays a huge part uh inside the (laughs) diner (laughs) Inside the diner, a man is playing pinball, and uh, another diner patron or maybe employee asks, is your ass attached to that machine? You wiggle it. That's going to make the ball go where you want it, huh? Did you see who that was? Yeah. Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil. James Avery. He's an uncredited role. Well, it's credited as man playing pinball or something like that. Oh, Um, is it? That's uh, weird. It's like... Because it's in the, the, the uncredited parts. Yeah. But whoever put him on IMDb put it as man playing pinball. Or oh, yeah, man. and he's not playing. Yeah, he's not playing. Uh, a waitress carrying a small shitty dog from table to table <laughs> uh, lets it nip at customers as she brings them food and drinks. I feel like this would get shut down right away. 
Um, it must be like a super small town diner where people just put up with nonsense. A badly rotoed television plays a commercial for dog treats starring actress Nina Franklin. Cameron is sitting nervously at the bar and the guy next to him just grabs him roughly by the arm to compliment his eagle tattoo. Uh, it's kind of like not a great tattoo. Like it's just kind of lightly outlined shape of an eagle and the guy's like, oh my God, that looks like a billboard. Like he's really exaggerating how cool this tattoo is for some reason. Cameron stands to sneak out of the diner when cops are suddenly blocking his path and we can hear sirens in the distance. Uh, he decides that he's going to switch to playing the pinball machine by the door, but then both cops grab him to handcuff him against the machine. And uh, he jumps one of them and runs for it out the back door of the diner as they're shooting at him repeatedly. But he, like, throws his handcuffed arms over the guy's back and knocks him to the ground in the parking lot. And then he scampers off into the woods. He comes up to the telephone pole that the phone workers are on. And uh, they're trying to, like, get the cop's attention. Like, oh, he's over here. He just came through. And he knocks one of them down with, like, a throat punch. Like, he, like, jams his thumbs into the guy's Adam's apple. Oh, the, guy, the guy came down the pole to, like, take him on. He was, yeah. you know, it was like, I was I was in Vietnam or something like that. And, and... Or he was in a war. And oh, then yeah. Rails Oh, no, was yeah, because he was in, like, Korea. And the yeah, other guy's like, like, I was, I was in, in the Nam, war, too. And then he pummels him. Yeah. Then he runs off to the edge of well, he a grabs river. A, he grabs one of their tools, too. Yeah, a bolt cutter. He moves off out by a river where he chops the chain on his handcuffs so that he can actually move faster. And he gets onto this old bridge that he's crossing on foot when suddenly there's a super old-fashioned car coming across from the opposite side. And he throws up a hand to, like, flag down a ride. But the car just blows past him. And then it suddenly stops. So he thinks it's stopping for him to get in. But then when he tries to get in, the driver is just kicking him, throwing him out of the car. And then it speeds forward across the bridge. And I was so confused at this point. Yeah. Did not know what was happening. So th the car continues across the bridge very quickly. And then it skids into a U-turn to come back across the bridge. And the driver seems to be aiming it directly at Cameron in the yeah. middle of this bridge. But Cameron is at this point on the ground because he got kicked to the floor and he sees all these bolts that are lying on the side of the bridge from when it was constructed. I don't know if this is like a fresh bridge and they left parts on it. Mm. But he grabs one of the bolts and he hucks it at the windshield of this old car. And then the car swerves to avoid him or like he he loses his grip on the wheel. I'm not really clear what happens, but the car accidentally drives off the side of the bridge. Well, first it just appears that it had vanished. Yeah, because he covers his face to like protect himself. And then when he looks up, the car is just gone. And he looks over the side of the bridge and there's like a swirl in the water where a car might have gone in. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear that that's what just happened here. Um, I also noticed when the car is making the U-turn that there's a camera crew on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Which like could have looked like a mistake at first. But given the, the plot of the movie, it doesn't matter. There's, there's cameras in every shot. That's one thing about making a, a movie about making a movie. Yeah. <laughs> is that if there's cameras or, or crew or microphones visible, it's like, it's okay. I almost felt like it would have been interesting for Rush to have included, like, let a boom mic hang into the shot in the diner when they're working on the pinball machine. Mm. It's just like, this clearly wasn't on set, but it's a different, it's a movie. You're also mm. watching a movie. Cameron steps to the edge of the bridge to watch the bubbles dwindling where the car possibly sank when suddenly there's a helicopter lowering into frame in front of him. There's a camera person hanging out of the side of the helicopter, and director Eli Cross is peeking through a small window, emotionless, directly at Cameron. Cameron runs 
and he takes a knife and cuts his pants into shorts so that he can blend into a crowd on the beach outside the hotel never Coronado. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> a crowd is watching a biplane swing over the shore as a full camera crew is set up on the beach complaining about losing light for the day. Something expensive is happening because it's a stunt shot and they have five cameras rolling. A biplane is firing on a group of German soldiers on the beach and boxes are exploding on the shore. The plane swings back for another pass and further explosions continue to rock the set. As the smoke clears, the crowd sees bodies littering the beach, missing arms and legs and lower halves and just piles of guts underneath them. Uh, the kind of stuff you can't possibly set up in this short of a take. And the audience is sure that something went wrong and these actors have been killed. I think it's funny because they, you know, they threw in a line after the scene that's like, oh, he likes to do it in one take. Yeah. Uh, he likes, you know, apparently the realism Eli of likes do- it in one. Yeah. doing it all together. But you can't. That's not how that, That's not how those kinds of shots work. I mean, you could conceivably, but it would be way more work than is necessary for a film especially when like the guy says he's probably going to come in and do pickups for the next three hours right but it's like okay all of these soldiers are getting shot at now quickly bury yourself and throw some guts out like (laughs) yeah like they would have people like hiding in boxes and then swap people out or uncover people that were already there and make up on the floor yes it's complicated but it's like 1917 complicated where you're like We're going to do this all in one shot for some reason. This is unnecessary. (laughs) After the camera person yells cut, all the bodies sit up and uh, they're removing the corpsey props as the crowd applauds. A man watches from over Cameron's shoulder and asks, Why do they always use so much blood? Ruins the realism, don't you think? I'm not sure what the point of that line was, unless they're implying that there would be that much blood in that situation and the guy doesn't know that, or... That's what I'm assuming. Yeah. Because it even... Because it fooled... It fooled Cameron. Yeah, and who, Cameron, who went through yeah, the shit in Vietnam. Yeah. After the take, a woman, it, clearly in elderly makeup, asks for an autograph from the lead actor on the beach. She explains that she lost her son and husband in the war that they're, that they're reenacting here on the beach. Eli Cross's helicopter lands, and he steps out. Other crew ask what happened with the car accident, and he says that the car was recovered, but Bert is gone. They're searching for a body downriver at this point, but... There's no sign of him. As Eli's helicopter pulls away, the old woman opens up an umbrella and a draft lifts her and throws her into the water. Cameron moves to rescue her, just him. Nobody else (laughs) notices this lady fall in or tries to help. While he's pulling her out of the water, she starts peeling her face off because she's wearing makeup and he freaks out and drops her back into the water before he recognizes her as Nina Franklin, the woman from the dog food commercial he saw in the diner. He tells her, they gotta be crazy to cover a face like yours. And she explains, it's just for the ending. But she'll have to tell him this again later. <laughs> because I guess he's not paying attention. Did she jump in on purpose? I don't know. It's possible. He carries her to shore, and when Eli sees someone carrying her, he assumes that something terrible happened for a moment, but he realizes that they're just playing around. Uh, he tells the crew to get her back in makeup so he can see what it looked like before the water wrecked it. And, yeah, uh, the water wrecked it. She didn't yeah. just peel it off Well, the water destroyed it. It wasn't going to stay fine after it got all wet like that. He asks if he can speak privately with Cameron about the car accident. And Cameron says, it was self-defense. He was driving straight at me. The chief of police shows up on set. He's just yelling at people on his way to Eli. He needs to talk to Eli about this accident that happened. And Eli asks Cameron, how many cops are there after you? Because he's he's been able to read the situation very well and he knows something's going on. But 
Cameron's wearing handcuffs that are cut in half and he's super paranoid. Cameron doesn't answer him and Eli asks if he's willing to come on to replace this likely dead stunt person. The chief of police finally gets to Eli and lectures him for killing a stuntman and Eli says, well, why don't you explain what happened, Bert, to Cameron? And so now Cameron is having to play the part of this guy who died earlier today to get the chief of police off the set. He does a decent enough job, I guess. Uh, the chief of police seems satisfied when he, a few crew vaguely confirm that this is Bert. Yeah, and and he, and he as Bert says nothing. Yeah, but I also like that the only person that he asks to confirm, he's like, is that Bert or is that somebody else? And the guy's like, uh <laughs> just like gestures vaguely with his head but he's just like okay fine all right still i want you guys out of my town because he's tired of like the hassle they've been causing cameron's officially offered a job to hide here as a stuntman eli says you shall be a stuntman who is an actor who is a character in a movie who is an enemy soldier who look for you amongst all those because he's got like 10 layers deep into his uh disguise they decide they're going to clean him up and make him look different they shave him and they dye his hair blonde eli coaches the lead into a scene where he was bombed by someone from his own squadron but as a prank someone in the scene wrapped a condom around one of the corpse's fingers and during the take it slowly inflates to reveal the message eat at eli's joint written on one side of the condom and the crew is all cracking up about it and eli seems like shocked about it but he's still laughing even though they're wasting his time. Eli introduces Bert to the lead actor, Raymond Bailey. They already seem to have a little bit of tension because we'll learn later that Raymond Bailey does not like to have attractive stunt people because he views them as competition. But isn't that a compliment to you? Because these guys are supposed to be playing you? I guess, but the whole point of the stunt people is that you're not supposed to see their faces very much. Right. I guess maybe because he can, he's doing the stunts and looks good that he's worried that oh they won't need to hire a stuntman yeah and an actor because they can get both yeah are they gonna are they gonna uma thurman me off of this movie right did that happen in one of her movies basically like have you seen her in a quentin tarantino movie lately but have you seen zoe bell in a bunch of movies after that okay fair enough (laughs) outside the hotel the stunt coordinator goes over the basics with bert or lucky as his nickname might be now so he went from cameron to Bert to now they're calling him Lucky. So I'm trying to keep up. I put I put uh my notes is like he teaches him the ropes. Yeah. As they are as he's doing stuff with the lasso lasso yeah. tricks. Yeah. It seems like he literally has a lasso for whenever they're doing his stunt on a building so that he can catch the person as they're falling off the building. Lucky repeatedly draws comparisons to what he went through in Vietnam to prove that he can do whatever the coordinator needs him to. At first, it seems like the coordinator doesn't think he's up to any of it, but he's getting better and better even over the course of this little sequence here. They're practicing tackles on the roof. They're hanging off of awnings. That aren't, they're, they're not actual awnings from the building. They're reconstructed pieces that are strong enough to support the weight of a person. Mm. But they are up on the roof right. of this building. Of an actual building, yeah. Lucky learns that he's going to get paid 600 bucks for every major stunt, and uh, if he gets asked to do it a second time, he gets paid... again and he's ecstatic with this news but downstairs during a take Lucky's enthusiasm ruins what they're shooting because they can hear him upstairs going $600 that's amazing Eli says that the take was shit anyway because the script needs work 
and he speaks with Lucky a bit about his experience in the war, and he enlists the screenwriter, Sam, to rewrite chunks of the movie. In the middle of dinner, the chief of police, Jake, stops in to ask to see footage from the car because he heard the cops were chasing a fugitive near the set, and he fears that he may have been involved with that car accident that they had. Outside the hotel, someone mentions a person who killed a group of campers? Did you hear that? Like, nah. implying that that's had anything to do with what Lucky did? Hey, I'll bet they're looking for that guy who killed all those campers and... Um, I don't know if they were trying to imply that he's, like, literally just a crazy serial killer wandering from well, place I mean, to place. Yeah, I mean, because the part of the running part of the story is that you don't know what he did, and right. he won't say what he did. But this is the only, like, hint of red herring as far mm-hmm. as, like, why there's so many police after him. Cameron brings Nina up to the hotel's tower, which I can't tell if this is real or not. I think the tower is real, but the yeah, platform yeah. below it isn't real. Which platform below it? The one that he was supposed to jump to from the tower, I think, was added. Um, I'm not. Movie. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I know that the that tower on the top of that rotunda is real. Yeah. Uh, the last time I was there, because I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't particularly remember that part of the hotel. Yeah. But. But he brings Nina up there, and they argue for a bit about how dangerous it is. And uh, they start kissing very suddenly, and then a spotlight hits them from below, and we realize that we're in a take from the film. Eli asks them to stand in a profile to assist a quick relighting of the scene, and they're uncooperative. Nina just flips him off. Uh, With the scene in the can, Eli bothers them about their burgeoning relationship well not just bothers them but he he follows them by way of crane yes it's really amazing it's crane really, work yeah i was gonna say the crane work is so great because yeah because as they're moving around the arm of the crane has to raise and lower which means they have to give more or less slack yeah and he's Peter clearly O'Toole. he's not controlling the height or the location of the rotation like mm-hmm. he's not touching anything yeah he's just turning his head kind of and looking where he wants to go and the thing is just it's like they're they're conjoined. It's like he has a symbiotic relationship with this crane. It's it's really incredible how well it's being piloted. But the limerick that he reads for them is Nina, the actress so fair, who fancied a man with blonde hair. But Raymond discovers as he lifts up the covers that his double, young Lucky, is there. Eli invites Lucky aboard the crane at the end of this shot as Nina's heading to her room for the night. And Lucky doesn't want to get in there because he feels like he's basically being blackmailed into this job that he's being held hostage on set. But then Eli just swoops in and grabs him and like lifts him higher and higher into the sky so that he can't get away. And I say Eli's lifting him, but whoever is piloting the crane is right, the one right. doing it. He just knows what Eli wants. Yeah. They, I presume that he does this on all his movie sets. Yeah. Eli asks him why he was wearing broken handcuffs when they first met. He asks if he's some sort of pervert, dashing across the country in spurts with his fly open. (laughs) And Lucky responds, you're close, but later we learn he's not close. We cut to a dogfight happening just over the hotel. Uh, 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 With planes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. That's fair to that's fair to point out. You know, they could be Michael Vicking up here. (laughs) This is with planes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... I think our dog scenes for the movie are over at this point. Yes, we've seen our last dog. (laughs) Uh, Lucky rushes around the hotel tower as bullets are just tearing it to shreds. A door tips forward out of its frame from the tower and knocks out the wooden handrail to form a sort of plank out to a lower platform on the roof. 
Lucky fights with a dozen German soldiers as he runs across the roof, and an, an era-appropriate biplane flies very low over the hotel, despite the fact that the actual production could not get clearance to fly it over the hotel. The pilot pretended to have technical difficulties, and then they shot what they needed while he made an emergency landing over the top of the hotel. <laughs> but while firing the blanks from the right, airplane. Right, right. so. Uh, very clearly just lying to the people that run the hotel. Well, I, I have a question about firing the blanks from that plane. So I don't necessarily understand how you do these special effects, but it looked like they were having like little bullets hit the wooden rail. Yeah, there were squibs all around the top mm-hmm. of that Oh, so building. squib can also be like on... Hard stuff, on, yeah. On hard, it doesn't like, have to be on a person. Yeah. Okay, I always just assumed it was like a, a blood pack on a person exploding. Yeah, no, they, they had explosions there were charges all over that thing but i couldn't tell if they were destroying the actual wood of the building or not yeah again that's what what's so great about how this whole thing comes together because i that building is is so well protected yeah i don't know how they got permission to do any of this yeah it's it's really incredible They, they they must have been they must have just like set up layers of things on top of the actual framework of the hotel that's that's what i would tend to assume i guess but i mean there are soldiers running over every inch of this roof yeah and like and that's not good for a roof no they're not designed to take impact like that you're not supposed to run on those tile or the not the tiles what are they called shingles shingles thank you yeah um a group of soldiers falls through a balcony because they had all these extra constructions on top of it and they crash against the side of the hotel pretty hard. One of them asks if they've fallen out of frame or if they have to remain in character, which you shouldn't ask out loud if you're not sure. Um, But when they came crashing against the hotel, because it's also still being used as a hotel, a guest leans out the window completely topless and starts shouting at them for bothering her in her room. Lucky rushes around a corner and comes face-to-face with the coordinator, who is apparently playing another German soldier in the film, and he jams him in the face with the butt of a rifle. He's basically knocked to the ground, and Lucky grabs his leg and is just like looks frantic in his eyes. And he says, "Will you turn loose on my legs? That's not the routine." And then Lucky twists to throw him off the side of the hotel. And this is the second moment where you're sure something has gone wrong. You see him drop to the floor, and uh, in shock, Lucky kind of dabs at the wound on his face. And then we get a shot of the coordinator below sitting safely in the center of an inflated mat under the... He's basically on the bullseye. So mm-hmm. we know that not only did he hit what he was supposed to, that this was a very precisely planned stunt right. that we were led to believe was was actually going wrong. Uh, Lucky moves to slide down a rain gutter, and we see a guy with a button blast a small charge that releases the rain gutter from the side of the building. And it tips very slowly backwards lucky is dropped through a series of awnings and eventually through a skylight into a bed with two naked people in it and the three of them all tumble out of the room into this rowdy bar room where a bunch of soldiers are sleeping with prostitutes and on his way like through crowd surfing over the bar he's basically stripped down to his underwear and dropped right in front of the camera it's it's very frantic and like a like a delusional kind of dream or something like that yeah like just all these hands are grabbing him and he really seems like he doesn't know what's happening yeah and we learn after this take that he didn't know beyond tipping backward on the the rain pipe that was supposed to be like the end of the stunt he was supposed to get caught at the end of that and that was the end but he fell through a bunch of awnings and through the skylight and eli explains 
well, you would have been fine. And the coordinator tells him that the even the two naked people in the bed were other stunt people that were going to coordinate this and everything would have been fine. So there was really no risk. But sometimes we need to set up that sometimes Eli likes to improvise things mm-hmm. and it can cause problems. But uh, Lucky doesn't have a lot of patience for this and he chews Eli out in front of the whole cast and crew. The next day, the cast gathers to watch the dailies from a couple of the scenes that they've shot so far. Nina's pretty upset with Lucky that he would talk to Eli like that in front of everyone. And then because she keeps talking to Lucky, Eli kicks her out of the daily screening. The reel ends with a blooper of a bad dummy hanging out of a plane and bouncing weirdly. We get this crazy split diopter shot with Eli and the screenwriter arguing about how to improve the scene. But because they're both in focus... Sam looks huge on the right, and Eli looks like he's sitting on his shoulder, basically. (laughs) The screenwriter is defensive about this scene where basically a pilot dies in a crash and his boots are ceremoniously dropped over his airfield. But Eli points out that they did the same thing in Wings and that it's too on the nose. He complains that we're shaking a finger at them when we should be, you know, hiding our point in entertainment, making them laugh, making them cry. We can't just lecture them. Eli asks Lucky what he would do in this situation where he was on a plane and everyone was dying around him. And he says, well, I'd probably dance for joy about the, my approaching death. And he's like, well, that's great. Well, why don't we do that? Maybe not a jig. Maybe we do the Charleston or something like that. And everyone's telling him, you're going to get a belly laugh. This is ridiculous. This isn't, this isn't supposed to be a comedy. And he's like, no, 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 this is, this is accurate to the madness of the character that he would be going through this. So we move to that scene being shot and Lucky is picked up from a battle by a biplane and the boots that he collected from his fallen comrade are tossed over the side of the plane and the two of them split a bottle of champagne and then Lucky moves out on the wing to do the Charleston on the edge of the plane wing. But while that's happening, the pilot is shot by enemy fire and the plane goes into a tailspin and Lucky just grabs onto the outside edge of the wing to avoid being thrown off as it spins. And then we realize that this is also a fake scene that it's happening in a stationary point with Mm -hmm. the safety of harnesses and everything. Even though the crew is all standing around like, oh my God, he's going to go flying off and they're not in frame. So there's no Mm -hmm. reason for them to pretend they think he's going to get hurt. Yeah. The the whole, the whole scene ends up being that while they were up in the plane and he was dancing, it was like, none of that was actually in the air yeah but the camera crew is ecstatic with the footage that they're getting they keep building this is one of like several kind of like weird fake outs where because they're trying to make you think that eli is really reckless that he's really willing to put these people in serious danger like i'm gonna have you go out on a wing of a plane and dance while while it's flying that's yeah you know i was like that's crazy you can't do that but then you say oh wait this is all still very controlled yeah and and well still maybe a little risky not nearly as risky as you think that Eli wants it to be. So far, only one stunt seems to have been let go. Yeah. <laughs> it's too risky. But while they're while they're filming him out on the wing of the plane, one of the, the camera crew says, What have you been seeing that soldier boy? Brave pills? It's not what he eats, but what's eating him? But eventually, after it lands, the plane hits a tree, and we cut to Lucky and Nina in bed together. They have just finished having sex, and she says that she just had her second orgasm of the day after watching him do his stunt work earlier and this. An alarm goes off to rush them to set, but Lucky urges her to ignore the clock and continue making love to him as though the clock were Eli screaming at her to do her job. 
the coordinator and Lucky sit down to watch the footage of Bert drowning in the car. It looks like Bert just completely screwed it up. He he did everything wrong along the way. He didn't actually try and get out of the car properly, and he was panicking inside. Mm. And uh, but but where did his body go? Yeah, that's the question. If well, there even was a body, I have a lot of questions about this though, because at the beginning they're making it, they made it seem like. It, the car veered off by accident, but we established later that he's supposed to be doing right. this mm-hmm. shot. And then are they implying that, like, I feel like they're implying that Eli did something nefarious to get, like, better footage, you know, that, that he did this on purpose. Well, I think Lucky thinks that he caused the stunt driver's death by hitting the windshield with a bolt because... He had less air to work with, basically, because the windshield was cracked from the bolt that he threw at the car. And so he thought it flooded faster than it was supposed to, and he killed the stunt driver. But then the coordinator says, oh, the windshield could have broken in the impact. That has nothing to do with the stunt. So it's like, okay, so we've settled that this isn't Cameron's fault. And if it's not Eli's fault, then it's literally just Bert's fault. And then, yeah, like you said, where did Bert go? Yeah. Well, and and if it was all a stunt why was Bert trying to, why was Bert continuing to do the stunt when there was a person on the bridge? Yeah. Interfering with the footage. Like, even if you did the stunt, you would have a person in modern day clothes running around on a bridge. It wouldn't work. Yeah. And the coordinator tries to say that he was so focused on the stunt that he didn't, he wasn't paying attention to that. But you should be more focused on the stunt and know that this is not a usable take and it's Mm -hmm. a waste of the car. And then why did he stop on the bridge? Yeah, like, there, there's like all these questions about how that stunt was performed that make it seem very odd. I kept expecting the original Bert to show up again. It, well, when we get to the end, I was yeah. going to say like that's that's when I thought it was going to happen right there. Yeah, I was like, oh my goodness. But on set, Sam interrupts the scene with a suggestion that instead of leaving flowers on a grave, Nina, the old woman, uh, instead leaves something more intimate, uh, a, a symbol of their relationship together. And he brings out this bag and he has this mechanical bronze statue of a girl on a swing having sex with a bear. And at first, Nina and Eli are both like choking back laughter at how dumb this idea is. But then Eli breaks and admits that he thinks it's genius. And he's excited that he and Sam are finally working on the same movie because he gets the tone that he's going for. Um, We cut to the scene where this prop is being used. And the old woman leaves the bronze on the headstone of the pilot who basically the story of this film is about a woman who found a pilot who survived the war and she basically sheltered him until uh, her old age. But he died. And so he's buried in this this unknown soldier tomb. But she knows who it is because she took care of him when he was alive a gentleman in the cemetery tries to usher her away because he's like, no, this is, it's an unmarked grave. You need to move out of here. And we see a crowd of onlookers that are just laughing at her because of this pornographic prop she put on the. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure what they were laughing at. I thought they were just laughing at her like period, like as a mourner. That would be weird. It, it was, well, the whole scene's still weird. Yeah. I think, but, but I, I think they're laughing because she put this thing up of, of, girl having sex with a bear on a headstone um but uh the man in the cemetery accidentally trips over a c-stand and uh he apologizes to eli for ruining the take and when nina stands eli rushes in to hug her and she starts crying and eventually laughing 
and then we move out of this scene. Eli pulls Lucky aside and gives him a pamphlet on how to escape a sinking car on the way to the screening room, because evidently he's going to try again to get some interior footage of the car for that shot. Well, and, and it was from uh, New Amsterdam. Right. Or not New Amsterdam, Amsterdam, regular Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, old OG, Amsterdam. OG Amsterdam uh, because of the canals and the, the dri- people driving into the canals was a problem. Yeah, there's experts in driving into the canals out there. Um, the police chief shows up again and they're here to watch dailies because they want to see the footage of the crash scene because uh, they think that there might be a sign of this fugitive they were after in the dailies. But somehow Cameron is nowhere to be seen in the footage because of movie magic and editing and Eli managed to just cut out every shot that included him in any way. Um, So he and Lucky leave and return to set. Lucky seems convinced that Eli's intent is to kill him with a stunt and cover his tracks because Lucky's the only person who knows what happened. I mean, he's Wait, not the cover only person. What tracks? The tracks that he killed a stunt person for his movie. I think a lot of people know that he's not Bert. Yeah. Though, so I don't think that killing him covers anything up. Right, but I think he knows the other people, and the other people rely on him for a living, whereas this guy might just disappear when the movie's over and sell him out Yeah, i guess i don't know like i think that's a pretty silly thing to think because a lot of people know that bert died yeah but i don't think a lot of people care or at least they're they're not in a position to do anything about it where if lucky survives this film he can go off and sell the information to whoever he wants but uh lucky uses his wartime experience or I guess a friend's experience with a bouncing Betty as a metaphor for his predicament, where when you step on the bouncing Betty, it doesn't kill you when you step on it. It kills you when you step away from it. And he thinks that he's he's only safe as long as he's working on this movie, and then when he's done with this movie, he's going to get killed right away. Sam plays third wheel as Lucky and Nina are flirting in their hotel room, but eventually Lucky explains that he knows that she had a relationship with Eli because the the makeup girl basically spoiled it she while she was doing his makeup one day she said oh yeah they had a relationship a long time ago oh oh, i'm sorry i guess you didn't know about it Mm. and uh lucky's pretty upset i I like this scene because i like how sam describes his relationship with eli yeah he's like like i'm a sadist so that's why i'm his best friend friend. (laughs) yeah um but uh nina is obviously very upset at being criticized for having had a relationship with eli and she leaves and then Sam sort of like lectures him about how obnoxious he's being, that he's an asshole. And Lucky admits that he basically he wanted her to be a virgin. Like he, he expected that she had zero sexual experience and it bothers him that she's ever had sex with anyone, even if it was once or twice three years ago with Eli. And then Sam tells this really disturbing story. He says, I get, just to, to hammer home that the fact that they're a virgin means nothing. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I had a virgin once. I had to go to Guatemala for it. She was blind in one eye, and she had a stuffed alligator that said, welcome to Miami Beach. Which I think he means he went to a child prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. Which is gross. Um, but it's a virgin. Do you see why that doesn't matter now? So we cut to Lucky arriving at this dinner party outside. And the music playing here is called Bits and Pieces, featuring Dusty Springfield singing lyrics to Dominic Frontier's theme for the movie. And it ends with, and you ask yourself, what good are dreams? I can't remember how the actual musical part goes. <laughs> we'll cut but in the actual The lyrics music. end with, 
and you ask yourself what good are your dreams in a world where nothing is what it seems. obviously lends itself to the themes of the film uh nina and lucky appear to bury the hatchet and smile with each other like we don't hear any real apology but the two of them are friendly again in a nearby bar another crew member is bragging about having finally quit the movie yeah so this was a weird uh did we did we gloss yeah we kind of glossed over something oh um uh because we with the the tank scene oh yeah uh, so just recapping real quick. I mean, because you know, there there was a scene where this guy called cut early because he he felt like the the camera film was going to roll out. Yeah. But uh, when he uh, Eli is really upset because he this guy called cut. Yeah. Not instead him. of the director. And he asks how much footage is left in the camera, and he says thirty three feet. Mm-hmm. And he says that's like three seconds. Yeah, that's twenty two seconds. Or twenty two seconds of footage is like, w- w- what are you doing? Um, so he gets pretty rough with this guy. Uh, and, but what was weird to me was they were at the birthday. It's like, it's, it's Nina's parents are there. Yeah. And it's his, it's the father's birthday party, I guess. I'm Um, not sure. But all of a sudden it's just like cuts and the party's over. Nina is gone and Cameron's uh, is at the bar. Yeah. I was like, how did we get here? (laughs) Well, that's every scene cut though. In this whole movie, we cut very drastically and sharply from, one like day to night and here to there well i i feel like that's the 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 previous 150 minute cut being shaved down yeah that's possible like like it's like we just got some stuff we got to cut this birthday party scene thing that doesn't matter yeah but yeah this guy is telling him that he was in the helicopter when uh when the stunt went wrong He, he basically says i quit this job and i have this dime and this dime is eli's ass i'm gonna take it to a phone I'm going to put in a call and I'm going to say what happened to Bert and this will all be behind us. Well, and he's also threatening Cameron because like, he's I don't just... think he realizes he's threatening Cameron because he doesn't know Cameron's past. So he, he thinks this guy just lucked out and came to set to be another stunt person, but lucky knows this is going to put me in hot water. Mm-hmm. And so I can't let you make this phone call. So he tries to walk him out of the bar, but then he shows this big scar that he has on his neck and he says, I was in the helicopter and I tried to stop filming so that I could help because there was a person drowning in the scene and Eli basically attacked him and forced him to keep shooting. Obviously, he feels super guilty about that and he wants Eli to do his time for contributing to this guy's death. Which again lends lends itself to Cameron's theory that this is this wasn't an accident with, right. the, with the previous stuntman that Eli is just crazy and putting people in danger. But what's really weird is that he didn't even get a good shot out of it. Like, it's not even, like the coordinator said when they watched the footage, it's not even a shot they could use. So it's like, it's one thing if it's like, if it's really good footage of a guy drowning, I can understand why Eli would be so desperate to get all of it. But if it's completely unusable, then why not let someone interrupt to try and save the guy? Mm. The next day, Nina's parents sit in during the dailies process, and Eli pretends to accidentally uh, slip in some footage of nina uh fully nude for a scene in bed in front of her parents and and uh, presumably her sister like younger kid sibling brother or something no, i don't i didn't see a younger sibling yeah but. i think the younger sibling was actually in the movie and that's why her parents were there oh. i think it was supposed to maybe represent her younger in the movie because they got really excited after the scene and they were all clapping yeah and then 
And then it cut to the Nina stuff. And so I think that they were putting yeah. her sister in there too. And yeah, it was just like, oh no, I feel so terrible that we accidentally put this footage in. Yeah, and because you see the parents clasping hands and they're like digging each into yeah. each other's like skin. Because this is super uncomfortable for them. Um, and then later we see Nina having trouble drawing shame into her performance. And she says, I think it's because my parents are here. I'm just going to tell my parents to leave and then maybe it'll help me like you know get get out of my own head and get into this character and and feel the shame of my character and then he leans in and he says hey so you should know something happened during dailies today we accidentally showed them the scene where you guys were having sex so your parents watched all of that and she's just shocked and crying immediately and can't even speak like she's speechless and so they roll the whole set in behind her and like there's a torch that they move into the foreground there's Mm -hmm. Uh, you know flowers and and this nazi awarding uh, her the iron cross (laughs) yeah they're wrapping the iron cross around her and she's still in that moment of like just taking in what eli just said to her but she's perfectly expressing the shame that he wanted for the character in this scene the next day lucky and nina are in their hotel room again and they're arguing over whether or not he's evil or crazy because she seems to think that he's he's evil that he's doing these things to just to make her mad and uh lucky says she's just that he's just insane and that he's pretty sure that that eli's trying to kill him like literally kill him uh, the next day the coordinator walks lucky through the new car stunt i guess it's not the new car stunt it's the same stunt over again mm-hmm. but they're down to their last vehicle for this <laughs> as he's going through it point by point he shows all the missing safety equipment he's like oh it doesn't have a roll cage because it would look bad and it doesn't have seat belts because it would look bad on camera and he just walks through the reason this looks like a death trap is because it doesn't yeah. look good on film. This car is 100% death proof. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, but there are <laughs> there are some amenities. The the steering yeah. wheels reinforce so he can hold on to it if, to brace himself for the impact. Yeah. And uh, there is a canister of air, which I presume was also present for the previous stunt. It should have been. Uh, uh. But yeah, there, was a, there should be a regulator under the seat that he can use for a last breath of air before he swims out the window to the surface and there's supposed to be safety divers in there too so right. i don't know where those guys were when the Bert first was pass? going down yeah. i kind of presumed when they showed the bubbles underneath the water that, that, it, that was the divers it was supposed to be the divers but they never really that never really went anywhere yeah we never we never solved the whole Bert mystery <laughs> eli tells nina that lucky is a criminal and a psychopath so now she's heard from each of them that the other person is crazy in a row she goes to speak with Cameron who's like downstairs working on a car in the garage and uh, he explains that when he was in Vietnam that he killed a lot of people and he hoped that things would be better when he came back to America but they weren't his he was like he was supposed to get married he was going to open an ice cream shop like it just seems like the plans of a child basically and uh, he expected all that stuff to still happen when he got back but nobody cared about him and they all just looked at him like he wanted to kill their babies, like presumably he did when he was in Vietnam. Well, and the girl who was supposed to be waiting for him cheated on his partner with the ice cream shop. Yeah. And they didn't, like, they didn't care. Yeah. And uh, he says that the charges against him were for attempted murder, that uh, when he found out that his friend and his wife or girlfriend had uh, had gotten married while he was gone, he broke into the shop at night. He was just destroying everything they had. And while he was there, a cop came in to check on the shop. I don't know if they got a call or it was like a, he triggered some security system. 
but a cop came in and he went to he thought it was his friend so he went to smash him over the head with a bucket of ice cream and he knocked him unconscious with the ice cream but he didn't know that he knocked him unconscious and he left and so the guy's head was in this frozen ice cream all night and apparently he lost like his ear his ear lobes and his nose and the whole time he's telling her the story nina is cracking up at the details yeah this is a horrifying story yeah and and he even seems like he's taking it way more seriously than she did but this whole time we thought that he was like a serial killer or something like that and it turns out that he literally just accidentally gave a cop frostbite and that's why there's 30 cops after him i just find it hard to believe that you could leave a bucket of ice cream on a guy's head and actually cause that much damage like wouldn't it just melt and you'd be done with it well it depends on where they were when it happened like if he knocked him out in a walk-in freezer or something like that i could see how it'd be a problem but yeah that's the end of the story and nina's laughing so hard that she has to rush to the bathroom so she doesn't pee herself the two of them decide that they're going to steal a prop car and a security guard tells them, no, you're not, because <laughs> Eli says this is all locked up. You're not going anywhere. And uh, besides, there's roadblocks everywhere because they're looking for that guy who who slightly froze a cop's face. Lucky improvises an alternate ending where on set he'll ignore the directions that Eli gave him and he'll just drive across the bridge and away from the set forever. And it'll be at least 15 minutes before anyone really figures out what's going on. And Nina says, well, I can go with you. I'll just stow away in the trunk of the car and we'll escape together and forget this movie because I don't care about it. And if he's literally going to kill you at the end of this movie, then we don't we don't need to stick around. If I have to choose between you and shooting a scene where I make a sandwich for someone at the end of this movie, I'm going to go with you. I don't really understand this plan. I feel like there's no way that's, that nobody's going to notice that she's mis- like she's missing like yeah they're gonna notice she's the star i guess she's not in this scene but they're still gonna be like where is she yeah uh eli informs the crew the next day that they have to get this right in one take it's well, their last car sorry we should go back to the fact that she just climbs into the trunk yeah yes. she literally climbs into the trunk expecting to stay there stay overnight there until the yeah until yeah. the morning that's yeah. so weird so but the next day eli tells everybody that we only have one car we got to get this in one take everything's going to be good and then we're we're done here lucky goes to check on the trunk but he keeps getting distracted by people and things that need his attention and Uh, then and and one of them is raymond who says something really weird to him yeah he he leans against the it's like shot from below and he's leaning against the trunk to open it and then raymond says you know it doesn't matter if if she loves you she's in there and if she doesn't she's not so apparently she told him about the plan or like somehow Raymond knew what they were going to do. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, we can circle back around to it after, but I'm assuming he does know. Yeah, I mean, he has to because of right. what he said. Right. And we haven't but, seen any scenes where what he thinks is happening is just blatantly not happening. It's always mm-hmm. happening, but they're actors. Or right. So we're not we're not actually like breaking any laws of physics or reality here. Yeah, because I always thought it was a delusion at first that he thought that Raymond was saying this yeah, stuff. But then that hasn't happened at all so far. But but has it? Because he gets really confused in the long takes. Like, it seems like they strung a bunch of what needs to be multiple takes together, and he sort of experiences it as one long episode. Or maybe it's just a callback to what Eli was talking about, where, you know, he likes to get them in one, so they do a master of every stunt in a row and they go back and do little pickups here and there but it seems like the stuff you want pickups of is you know the most 
intensive stuff like the explosions and yeah. people breaking stuff. But they try to do a quick tech test. And uh, when Eli tells him, okay, well, the red light's going to turn on and that's how you know the camera's on. And they do a quick test and they turn on the red light and they say, all right, is the camera on? And he says, what? And a bunch of people are on all sides of the car just going, camera on, camera on. And he thinks they're saying Cameron, his name. And so he freaks out and he starts the car early and uh, everyone flies into action to try and get footage of the take because they weren't expecting him to Is go Is that yet. what he thinks? Yes. That they're saying his name? I didn't realize that yeah. either. I, I thought they were- t- Because they're specifically just saying camera on. Well, I, I, I thought that it w- what he thought was the camera's rolling and so right. he needs to go. Right. I, I think what he's hearing everyone say, camera on, camera on, outside the car, and he thinks he's been found out suddenly. Uh, yeah, I didn't get that at all. Bump it again. Camera on. Huh? What? Ask him if it's on. Camera on. Huh? He says it's a camera on. And uh, he starts the car early, um, and he starts racing for the bridge, and everyone's rushing to work and uh, turning on all their cameras, getting everything going. They get everything basically just barely in time set up to get the take the way Eli wanted it. But, of course, Lucky's new plan is to continue across the bridge and not stop. But this plan is blown when we get the the second instance of Eli deciding to improvise things during a take. And it turns out that they're going to remotely blow the tire on the car. So he doesn't have a choice about driving off the bridge into the water. And he goes flying off the bridge and scrambles over the back of the seats because he thinks Nina's in the trunk and she's going to get drowned. And nobody else knows it. And even, even if there were divers under the water, they wouldn't know that there was a person in the trunk and wouldn't get her out. But then as he gets over the seats into the back seat, he sees her on the bridge with Eli watching the car go underwater. He moves back to the front seat to finish the scene as it was planned, but the regulator seems to be broken. He's able to roll down the window, though, slowly, and he surfaces regardless of everything that went wrong, and he swims to the shore. Uh, As he crawls out of the water, there's a troop of German soldiers that are all pointing their bayonets at him, and they start to drag him away when Eli finally yells, cut. And the soldiers all start to congratulate him for what a great job he did. This doesn't make sense to me either, because isn't the point of this scene how the character dies in the movie? I guess not. I guess they changed the ending again. Okay. But uh, but Lucky just starts breaking into a fit of laughter when he realizes that this was all part of Eli's plan. And uh, the coordinator comes flying up on a jet ski, and he crashes into the shore so hard that he does like a front flip over the handles. Nina says that... They found her in the trunk five minutes after they parted last night and for no reason didn't tell him. <laughs> well, that, that's how I'm assuming that Raymond knew Yeah. that, and so he's like, oh, her plan was to hide out here. So Well, and then I presume that Eli finds out and takes advantage of the situation. It's like, great, we'll use this. We're going to let him think we're, that you're in the trunk. Right. We're going to mm-hmm. let him drive away like a bat out of hell here thinking that he's getting away with this and I'll just blow the tire and it'll look that much more authentic. Yeah. And- and Nina even says, like, oh, Eli told me about how you changed your mind and you were going to drive off the bridge. And uh, I'm so glad that everything went off without a hitch. And Eli speaks with him about why he did what he did. And eventually, at the end of the scene, Eli is trying to shortchange Lucky because he was supposed to get $1,000 for the stunt, according to the coordinator. And oh. he says, oh, well, no, that's that was never the deal. We also see divers coming out of the water. And, and we realize how safe he was, yeah, exactly. But then I thought for sure that they 
like who's gonna go oh the divers were really down there but then it was gonna be like one of them coming up with the body of oh god Bert. i was like oh, oh god no. here it is because i kept waiting for this movie to get really really dark yeah like i i thought for sure something really terrible was going to happen and the, the they kept hinting at something really bad like well a cop did get frostbite yeah and the yeah. guy did maybe die or just vanished um but it i kept waiting this this is ultimately this is like a little bit more of a comedy yeah uh the way it ends it's definitely a comedic note but uh apparently either for the last scene or for the first scene when the car drove off the bridge the way it was supposed to work is the car didn't have anybody in it and it was supposed to hit a track on the bridge that would drive it direct it off the side but the first time they ran it it hopped the track and it continued to cross the bridge and like crashed into a camera and like knocked a bunch of crew off the road so oh man but yeah i'm assuming they only had enough money to wreck one car and so when you see the car in the dailies go into the water that's actually the shot from the end of the movie when the car did go in the water yeah because i don't think they destroyed two cars for this especially if you're not even going to show it hitting the water for that first scene um but yeah i kept expecting bert to come back and he just never did um because eli seems genuinely upset like he he comes out of the helicopter crying at the beginning like his eyes are red from crying like he he's really he really seems distraught but i thought that that was an act because i thought he's just is is, this is going to be like apocalypse now or something like that where he's lost his mind yeah he's willing to kill people to make this movie he's sadistic he lies uh but and while he does do things that are very kind of mean he's actually like genuinely just trying to make a film and is concerned about the people's safety yeah yeah, but he did then trick the guy at the end and blew his tire to make him go and do the stunt he didn't want to yeah. do. Yeah, but that's fine. Is it? Yeah, because he's a capable stunt man. He knew he was going to get out alive, and he had divers in case he didn't. Yeah, I think that that's not okay. No, probably not. Um, director Richard Rush here. Uh, he did Color of Night, Air America, Freebie and the Bean. Um, further back in his career, he did Psych Out and Hell's Angels on Wheels, two movies featuring our friend Bud Cardos. Writer Lawrence B. Marcus was a longtime TV writer back to 1950. Uh, he obviously got an Oscar nomination for this. He didn't He didn't win, though. The novelist Paul Brodere didn't have any other IMDb credits. Eli Cross here is Peter O'Toole. Yay! Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he was Tiberius in Caligula early this year for us. Um, he's Henry II in The Lion in Winter, and he's just overall great, fun guy. I, I like watching old interviews of him. Yeah. Because he's just a fun character. Yeah, I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. Yeah. Uh, Steve Railsback was Cameron, a.k.a. Burt, a.k.a. Lucky. He was Charles Manson in the TV movie Helter Skelter. He also played Ed Gein in the 2000 Ed Gein movie. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He's Colonel Tom Carlson in Toby Hooper's Life Force. And yeah. he plays Colonel Prizer in Barbed Wire. Uh, Barbara Hershey was Nina Franklin. She's Boxcar Bertha in Boxcar Bertha. She's <laughs> Chuck Yeager's wife. Glynis Yeager in The Right Stuff. Uh, she's Harriet Bird in The Natural. Mary Magdalene in The Last Temptation of Christ. And uh, more recently, she was Erica Sayers slash The Queen in Black Swan for Darren Aronofsky. Alan Garfield was Sam. 
who is for some reason credited as Alan Gurwitz in this movie, possibly changed his name after this. He was Harold Lutz in RoboCop 2, he's Witkin in The Ninth Gate, and he's Harry Fishbein in Mother Jugs and Speed. Uh, Alex Rocco was Jake, the chief of police. He was Mo Green in The Godfather and Quinn in Herbie Goes Bananas for us very recently. Uh, he was one of, the, one of the three bad guys in that. Adam Rourke was Raymond Bailey. He plays Clint Crockett in Frogs. He's Deke in Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. And he was Buddy in Hell's Angels on Wheels, also with our friend Bud Cardos from uh, the same director. Philip Bruns played Ace. He was Frank Zabo in Flashdance and Doc Mandel in Return of the Living Dead. Michael Railsback played Bert, the original stuntman. He's the actual brother of lead Steve Railsback. And uh, all of his other credits are gaffer and electrician stuff. George Wallace played the father, uh, presumably Nina's father. He played Bosun in Forbidden Planet. He was Commander Cody in Radar Men from the Moon. He plays the president in Bicentennial Man. And he played, one of his last credits was as God on Joan of Arcadia, which I think every episode had like two or three people playing God. Mm. But he was one of them. Uh, John Alderman played Carl Benary. He was a bookie in Baltimore Bullet, and he plays a character named Phil Lacio in two films by Richard Cantor, Thar She Blows and Starlet. We had James Avery, you're right, credited as man playing pinball, even though he does not play pinball. He's Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince. He was Shredder early in the Ninja Turtles. This was his second uncredited role for us after the guy outside Ray's in the Blues Brothers, and uh, he also plays the detective who plants coke on fletch in fletch uh we also have greg Berger in an uncredited role doesn't say what part he played but he's a voice actor and a bunch of stuff including odie and eeyore and various incarnations of garfield and winnie the pooh he also does the voice of grimlock and a bunch of transformers stuff he was jecked in the american versions of final fantasy 10 and 10 2 and uh, agent k on the men in black animated series and he did the voice of the grumble on our real monsters <laughs> there you go um that, that, that's one of my favorite characters to do impressions of. it's such a great voice um and patricia mcpherson played pretty woman i'm not sure i was looking for her too i i, I i'm assuming she must have been someone at the beach scene yeah but I'm, I'm not sure who who they're deciding is the pretty woman um but she played bonnie barstow in knight rider and she was also Mike Forrester in a MacGyver episode. Yeah. But she was in Jack of Lies, not Widowmaker. So she's not the she's not the Mike Forrester that dies. Right, she's right, right. She's the Mike Forrester that gets kidnapped. I also want to mention the Charles Ball, uh, oh, okay. who played Chuck Barton, who was the stunt coordinator and who is actually a stuntman. No, oh, that's awesome. Uh, so uh, that was just, it was just good that he was playing. He reminded yeah. me like of a Robert Forrester type character. Well, and uh, he, like, he also is like a prolific director uh but uh like tv stuff yeah i'm like looking at really quick <laughs> i'm looking at baywatch nights yeah oh, baywatch nice. nights <laughs> we'll get to that podcast eventually just the baywatch nights podcast the night's uh, watch oh my god now my watch has ended <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's gonna be a fun podcast we're yeah, doing that it's not happening guys it will uh, um that was it all right up or down jess you know i'm i'm gonna give it an up but I, I don't know. There was something about this movie that just did not click with me. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just didn't really follow it very well. Yeah. Well, it's a big up for me. I like this one a lot. Uh, 
I'm going to give it up. Uh, I definitely liked it. I think you still could have cut another 20 or 30 minutes out of this sure. movie. Uh, it, it, it felt very long, although I was very interested in what was going on because, again, I kept waiting for this big shoe to drop. And it never came. But now that I have a better understanding of what the movie's about, um, I think I like it better. Yeah. I mean, I still have a lot of questions, and I'm still not quite sure of of how everything came together. <laughs> but uh, I certainly think it was a very interesting movie to see, and people should see it. Yeah. Richard, where does this go on your list? Um, I'm going to put this uh, – actually, I'm going to put this right below Tom Horn, which is right above Brubaker. Okay. Jess, are we closer to list? Yeah. So I would put it, um, I think I'm going to put it just below Foxes and just above the nude bomb. Okay. Um, For me, this goes right between Mad Max and Friday the 13th. But yeah, I think that's everything for this one. Uh, If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Speaking of, I'd like to offer a shout out to 21871138 for their glowing review of the podcast on iTunes. Wait, what was the number again? Two one eight seven one one three eight. Okay, it's well, just the one one three eight. I know through me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what the first half means. The second half is a Lucas reference, uh, or it's just a coincidence. It's an eight-digit number, and that person appreciates the show, and we appreciate you for listening. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Hangar Eighteen, which IMDb describes like so: After a UFO crashes in Arizona due to a space collision with a NASA satellite launch. The U.S. government tries to cover up the incident for political reasons. We leave you now with the trailer for Hangar 18. On October 24, 1979, a huge metallic disc crashed in the Arizona desert. Military authorities moved what they found to Hangar 18 at a remote Air Force base. Now an incredible new motion picture reveals startling proof that the government has a flying saucer in its possession and the dead bodies of alien pilots. Why have the facts been kept hidden from the American public? Learn the terrifying truth. See Hangar 18. Rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Don't miss Hangar 18.